This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Inherent vice in a maritime insurance policy is anything that you can't avoid. Eggs break, chocolate melts, glass shatters, and our host, hermetically sealed inside a dark screening room and kinda sorta ruminating on the end times when he'd much rather be watching movies wondered what that meant when applied to global contagions. God, Inherent Vice is so good. Watching for probably the tenth time. Can't remember how many other recent movies I've done this with. It's an immensely dense and inaccessible movie. Almost an anti-movie in a way. But it's all there. It just takes a lot of repetition. Don't feel bad reading plot summaries. I had to read the book, too. Just find your ways in. What waits is amazing. That is today's guest from a series of tweets he wrote today while rewatching a little movie with which you may be familiar. A passionate essayist on the subject of film, he has bylines at Polygon, Observer, Vulture, Verge, Entertainment Weekly, The New Yorker, Playboy, and Thrillist, where he writes labyrinthine articles about semiotics, dramatic function, and the intersectional nature of cinema. All of which made me think he'd be a pretty ace guest for today's scene, in which our wayward hero, Doc Sportello, truly begins to wade deep into the sunken horror of then-modern America for the first time in the film. And since I'm recording this podcast about a movie from, from within the confines of a depressingly empty movie screening room in my office during a goddamn pandemic, Sunken American Horror really is going to be the topic at hand. And for that, I needed someone with both his wits and his oversized muscles about him to help me through it. So, with that, Film Crit Hulk, welcome to Increment Vice. Hey, thank you for having me. And I'm going to go ahead and be honest. Because I'm not recording in my normal studio, we had some technical difficulties. And ten minutes in, had to stop the episode. And so we're pretending like we've never had this conversation before. We're, <laughs> we're, we are lying to you. Everyone out there listening, we are lying to you, pretending like we are doing this for the first time. So you're going to have to bear with us. I'll, I'll say different things this time. <laughs> <laughs> you want to do it in different voices, too? Like I can get like a southern accent? <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Well, again, for those who might be curious, because they saw, they saw some scary shit on Twitter, you're feeling okay now. Oh yes, yes. No, I am. Uh, I'm feeling better. Uh, it was it was kind of scary there for a hot minute. Just uh, it was kind of right when the quarantine was starting too, because this is uh, almost three weeks ago now. Um, and uh, it, it was a rough week, but I was talking to my doctor. Everything kind kind of just like we were in communication about everything. Uh, and uh, it was tough first nine days or so. But uh, now I still have a few lingering symptoms, but pretty good uh, uh feeling all right with it and just uh doing my best you scared me you scared me you scared <laughs> me on twitter 
Yeah, well, I, it was like, I was kind of nervous. Like, do I talk about this? Do I not talk about it? But it just like, I felt like I should talk about the experience and the inability to get tested and all the stuff. And it, it was something a lot of Americans were starting to go through. Yeah, um, you were the so. you were the first person I followed that was actually experiencing that, like watching someone experience that in real time. It was quite terrifying because I was still kind of on the cusp of, so is this going to, it's so, sounds so naive to think this, this now, but at the time it was like, so is this going to be a whole thing? Right. This, 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 this virus is this going to be like a thing, or is this just <laughs> is this just the ne- this the, the 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 nightmare that we're going to deal with this week, and then we'll have a whole new different nightmare next week. All right. Uh, but no, here we are, and as I told you earlier, it feels really weird to be talking about Inherent Vice to you or any <laughs> other movie right now. But again, as I said, it's either this or leave that little slug trail of Purell through my apartment as I just yeah. ch- chunk myself in the stuff. So. Instead of doing that, you're going to help me through my coping mechanism, and we're going to talk about this movie that I'm really, really obsessed with. But before we do, all over again, I'm going to make you tell me, for those who don't know, out in the cheap seats, why am I calling you Film Crit Hulk? (laughs) Uh, It started as a novelty Twitter handle I did like 10 (laughs) years ago now to make my friends laugh. and it weirdly became a thing is the is the simple way of saying it uh but it sort of became a place where i got to do what i wanted to do which was talk about movies Mm -hmm. and talk about them earnestly and sincerely and it started slow and it evolved into this place where i you know i I was writing giant essays and um and by giant we're talking giant giant like oh yeah (laughs) 10 to fifteen thousand word essays yeah. In in all caps, Hulk voice, Hulk <laughs> yeah. voice, like Hulk thinks this about Punch Drunk Love, but yeah. but not they they were incredibly erudite and lyrical and and dense and deep and very very like very heart on sleeve and in a in a really I said like the past tense you're still writing you're just you're more Banner Hulk now you're more <laughs> you're a little yeah. bit more subdued you're not yeah. punching through walls and screaming Hulk smash. That said, as I, I, I really, like, I, I'm serious. When I, I would prefer it if you did this in the Hulk voice. I think that that would make for a really <laughs> fun episode. But I can tell you're, you're, you're dead set on tanking this episode and acting like a normal human being, and you're going to ruin it for me. But I, I deeply apologize. My throat can't take it at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I, yeah, I guess I should be nice to someone who's coming, coming <laughs> off of their sick bed to, <laughs> to record a podcast, yeah. and here I am harassing you. <laughs> okay. What is your relationship with PTA in that as a, as a, as a fan, as a viewer, as a, as a, a film essayist, I've told you this, you know, this, that I am someone who has pestered you on Twitter to write about PTA. Where is that at? Where is that monolith that I can read about PTA from film Kurt Hulk? Uh, the, the simple answer is uh, I, I never wrote something because I knew it would be a big deal when I did. Um, there, there's a lot of filmmakers like, I haven't written too much about the Coens yet. I haven't written too much. Like, like a lot of my favorites, um, you know, people like Tarkovsky and people like I, I just, because I know if I get into it, I'm really, really going to have to get into it. Yeah. Um, and Because I, I remember I, I saw Boogie Nights in the theaters. I saw it with my mom, actually. That's, that's always it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she loved it. It was great. Well, it is uh, a film about family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I'll say, I mean, she was, she was an English teacher, so it was just like she, she, loved movies and we had a big appreciation for it in my house uh 
But ever since I saw that, it just started me down this path, you know, especially for a lot of people who were teenagers in the 90s, like, like, yeah. oh, this guy, like, like, like there, it was this lightning bolt with Paul Thomas Anderson when he came on the scene and to watch his career change and evolve and everything he's been doing. He's just been so important to me. Uh, and a lot of other people like, I'm not, no, we're not alone in this. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so I, I was gonna write a big column and then I realized pretty quickly it was mammosized and would be a book. Uh, so I started writing that and then I put it on the back burner cause it was going to be my second book after I did my other book. But now that other book is sort of a no man's land. So I got to figure that out. But like, Literally in the process to catch you up right now of rewatching this movie for this podcast, I was like, I got, I got to come back to this. I got, I just have to write about this in in some capacity. So I'm gonna figure out the way to do that. <laughs> well, it's about goddamn time. <laughs> to that end, before we start uh, dipping our toe into this movie, unless this movie is the answer, what is your Paul Thomas Anderson horse? What's your movie? What's your go-to? I, I this is a cheat. Uh, but I say at the same time anybody asks me what's my favorite Coen Brothers movie I say the last one I the saw the last one you watched yeah <laughs> and, and it's it's not silly because it's true it's just they're they're uh, radically different and I kind of have a very different relationship with each one of them mm -hmm. uh, it's almost what the book is hopefully going to be about um, is is about those different relationships with the different movies uh, but th this this is just uh, you know, so I, I guess I'll say my answer is this one, right? <laughs> Fantastic. You heard it here first. Film Crit Hulk, favorite favorite PTA film, Inherent Vice. He can't change it. Can't change nope. that answer. Well, speaking of which, let's let's dial back the clock mm. about six years, back when we weren't terrified of breathing the air around one another. Inherent mm -hmm. Vice has just come out. Did you see it upon its release? And if so, what did you think at the time? Oh, it was their opening night. Mm -hmm. And now th this is an interesting thing. I realized I, I misspoke in the tweets I was writing earlier is uh, I had actually read the book before because mm -hmm. uh, I uh, like Pinchon. Pinchon? I, I always say weird. <laughs> Thomas Pinchon. <laughs> I 50-50 I, 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 I it. I was talking to uh, Ryan Johnson about this because we, we, we got into a debate about how you're supposed to pronounce it. And we, we finally decided you 50-50 it. Half the time you say Pinchon, half the time you say Pension. Yeah. And hopefully no one will notice and they'll just they'll go, oh, he's that's how you pronounce it. OK, OK. Pinchin. Yeah. Sure. Or if they maybe they'll latch on to Pinchin. Pinch on. So, he's so public. He'll correct somebody at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Is, um, so it's uh, it was one of those things. So I'd read it. So I was definitely familiar going in and I was very excited going in for that very reason. Uh, and I will say is like my first watch. The reason I now love it made for an interesting first watch because i think there's a lot of people who expected something more along the lines tonally of big lebowski like sure or the just, long goodbye yeah 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 right is is there's <clears throat> there's a, a a a more of a way of punctuating jokes and coming at it with a really sort of aggressive cinematic style which is not the style the movie has um this is like one of the most laid back, laid back films. Yeah. And not laid back like lazy. It's just so not aggressive in yes. its, in anything that it portrays. 
it's just it's very lax it's like a it's like a, a plume of smoke just blown in your face yeah and, and we'll be able to talk about this in the scene that we're talking about but um uh oh what's the character's name hold on i wrote it down i'm gonna do it um so uh sortilege i believe or or so sort of or however you sort of liege pinch pinch and pinch on like tomato sort- tomato my uh, old Boston will come out and be like, yeah, sort of much. Uh, but the thing that's sort of remarkable about like her and like we can talk about this so much in the architecture of the movie is that it it feels like it's an astrological detective story. <laughs> it, it's this dreamy like, you know, she talks about everything being in a fog in, in this sort of state, but it's like the movie kind of just wafts through itself and you know there's all these details and it's so dense and it's about so many things in america but you're you're kind of just like flowing through it in this really beautiful way and it's like all the jokes and all the humor and all the moments are there it's just like the movie is just kind of hanging back and letting them happen in this really fascinating way that's i love so much the tenth time, the tenth time I watch it, like every joke lands so hard to me. But I get why on that first watch, people can be like, "What? What am I? What? Where am I? What is happening? What? Like, what am I feeling?" It's such a different thing. Well, something that I've thought about a lot recently, <clears throat> in my eight thousand three watch, whatever it might be, is how, and I think it's to it's comes to the core of what you're saying, which is. You know, it's a movie that, which is a great line, a movie that wafts through itself. Part of that, I think, is that, you know, a normal film, you've got an A plot and maybe a B plot, maybe a C plot, but they're clearly ordained as such. Okay, this is our narrative backbone. Okay, here's this little bit of business, kind of a fun subplot. Maybe here's a sub-subplot just for laughs, whatever. Inherent Vice is a film that just, it doesn't ID anything. There's no kind of signifier to go, okay, this Coy Harlingen stuff, this is this is the A plot. Shasta's B. Uh, Wolfman is C. Uh, the uh, Channel View Estates, that's kind of D. Everything is presented somewhat nakedly, uh, unobtrusively, with no signifier to say, this is the big business. And uh, this thing, you can kind of tune out if you have to. Everything is presented as, no, this is the main thing. Yeah. And of course, you you stand back and you're like, well, it's all the main thing, but there's there's nothing to separate the. Um, I don't know if you're someone who likes none of your food on your plate to touch, but this is a, a film <laughs> where everything's. <laughs> oh well, but this is a movie where everything's just kind of mashed together, yeah. and it's up to you to decide what's what what the main course is going to be, because yeah. it's like PTA is not letting us know, yeah. and I think that that's what is so jarring for some people is you know it's like when you go see springsteen (laughs) you're watching springsteen you're having a great time and then he gets to that song waiting on a sunny day and you're like okay pee break this is when i can step out and not that you should but i think a lot of a lot of moviegoers kind of look for the pee break moment when they're watching a movie what's the moment i can kind of just take a breather and back out and there's no because Nothing in this movie is labeled as more important than the other. There's no moment where you can back out and kind of just try to mentally recap or collect what's happened and contextualize and understand. You're just, it's a, a, a never ending accretion of information. 
and you are not told what the context is or how to process it. Yeah. That's pretty it, jarring. It's, like, it's simultaneously never a pee break, yet always a pee break. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's a pee break movie. The whole movie, it's a pee break. Yeah, I, I, had a, I had a professor back in film school. <laughs> he said this thing I love. He's like, he's like, I don't know. I kind of like it when I can fall asleep in a movie and wake up in the middle of it, and it's fine. <laughs> inherent vice is definitely that movie it is yeah. i mean i say this with i say that with love oh. but you can sleep through a 40 minute chunk and then just pick up the thread when you dive back in and it's like it's like you didn't miss a beat he's still longing for shasta koi's still lost wolfman's still missing uh we still don't know if sore liege is real or not okay i'm still in the game here i only missed like 40 minutes of it yeah but yeah, i think go ahead good no i'm gonna say and it's and it's one of those things where it's like People come up to me and sometimes like, because a lot of times I'll talk about, you know, like story structure and drama and how you create like dramatic transcendence and all these things that, you know, popcorn movies live and die by. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, the the function of, of, of characterization and arcs and all this sort of stuff. And then they'll be like, how can you say that? And then like this movie, I'm like, oh, this isn't this isn't trying to be that. This doesn't need to be that. This is like a completely different kind of thing it's literally like you know we're speaking french and you're saying hey why isn't this in english it's like oh <laughs> that's that's not what this is trying to be and so uh it and, you know and i use that word <clears throat> it's sort of an anti-movie um because it's it's not trying to do any of those things like like, like we, we were talking about uh you know if it's a traditional detective story even if you might not know who they're talking about in a scene but you're watching something like out of the past right mm -hmm. you still get oh this character feels this way and this character feels this way and they're coming at each other yeah and, and i understand the relationship dynamic here and what it probably means but when you watch this movie it's like one character just might be completely our main character even it might be just like completely high and out of it and concentrating on something so completely different than the subject matter of what they're talking about. So it's <laughs> this like radically different, even emotional experience. Like I, I love that scene uh, uh, earlier when, uh, you know, he first shows up um, and uh, he goes, <laughs> I mean, for, for lack of a better uh, uh, way of describing it, it's the, it's the pussy eater special scene where he walks <laughs> in and he's talking to the and he's trying to get information but immediately the two women are they're pushing him out of the situation I, I not see here it yeah. says 14 okay yeah. <laughs> he's he's immediately subsumed by the situation right right exactly but it even leads to that remarkable moment when he turns around and he has that incredible pratfall where he's just turning and it's like i i wouldn't know how to describe the emotional context of that scene forget the plot <laughs> but, like yeah but there's this way if like you get on the wavelength the movie's going you understand it intuitively you know mm -hmm. and that's what's kind of remarkable about it is is it's a it's a movie you got to get on board with a thousand percent and not only get on board with but i think what you have to realize right off the bat this is one of those movies where the main character is in every single scene of the film yeah. you don't really think about it ever the way I think sometimes it's it's so much more clear, but like Joaquin Phoenix, Doc yeah, Doc, Doc Sportello is in every single sequence of this film. And part and parcel of that is the film is from his point of view. And I think it's part of the reason why we have that bizarre presentation of material in which nothing is made clear to us what's most important, because Doc doesn't know. 
No. Doc doesn't know. Well, well, what case am I on? Am I am I doing this? Am, okay, where am I at now? Am I am I just trying to get Wolfman out? Am I trying to figure out if Shasta got thrown off the boat? What what is this boat? And who's yeah. this Coy Harlingen that just comes out of the fog? And wait, oh, well, he, that's that's the missing husband of the girl that I talked to today, out in Torrance. Is that is that what I'm doing? <laughs> and the thing about Doc is he is so addled and lost in the fog, literally at one point in that very great Robert Altman-esque gray slate fog with with Coy. He doesn't know what the important thing is. He doesn't know the thread he's supposed to be chasing. There's a there's a brilliant scene in this that I was laughing so hard at today where it you know normally in this kind of movie you would have somebody setting up the giant board with the web and the dots yep. but what I love about this movie is when he sets up his board it's like half of it isn't filled in and he can't like spell people's names right <laughs> yeah. it's like the lines are connected to the wrong things and it's just like he just got random floating errata that's not connected he just heard it he heard a name one day so he writes it down yeah and that's the best he can do he, yeah he's a do-gooder he, or he's not a do-gooder but he does good yeah. and but I, that's so difficult i think and that's so antithetical to normal story presentation especially in a detective movie when that accretion oh. of detail it's both important that it, and it isn't because you know I, I'm, I'm an obsessive about detective movies and film noir and every time i try to introduce one to someone the first thing i always say is don't just forget the plot fuck it just don't worry about the plot it's just an excuse. Just forget no. about it. And yet every single time you always try, you, you try to get your graph paper out and you're like, okay, who is this? Okay. All right. Okay. With inherent vice, you, you both have to do that, but then are immediately waylaid when you try. And that's part of the experience is you're, you're supposed to feel like doc and you're supposed to be that confused and go puck Beaverton. What? Who? <laughs> what is that? Yeah. And which leads to the greatest sight gag in the film, no one laughs at this but me. It breaks my heart every time I show this to someone. When Clancy Sherlock is telling Doc about a Mickey Wolfman venture, and she says the name, and she's like, "That's uh, that's Spanish for sorry about that." He just writes down something Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> that's his go-to clue in the city of Los Angeles to yeah. find a neighborhood. Something Spanish. Yeah. Oh, all, all his notes are so good. I always think about paranoia alert. Paranoia alert. <laughs> so, he, he's not writing down what made him paranoid. No. So in retrospect, he's just going to see that and go something something set off his alarms. But he has he will have no memory whatsoever as to what. Yeah. I love him for that. All right. So I'm assuming that you love the film now. You at least enjoyed the film go oh, coming I out of it that first time. First watch, but it was also that like. Um, uh, I, say, I, I, I keep bringing up like different ways of explaining things, but I think this is a really good way. Um, so uh, I'm really into food and like I love cooking. I love doing all this stuff. Uh, there is uh, somebody was talking about this online a few weeks ago, a few months ago, whatever. What is time? <laughs> but, <laughs> Every day is exactly the same in quarantine. There is no time left. There's um, no time anymore. They were talking about how in the Thai language, they don't say, I don't like this when they eat something. The phrase they use is, I don't know how to eat this. <laughs> and wow. it sounds small, but like, like, it blows my mind how important that distinction is of saying like, you know, it's like, oh, the, this, this is weird to me. I like, I don't, I don't know how to eat this. And to me, like, I think this this movie is kind of a big, I don't know how to eat this, right? It's, it's incredible, yeah. Yeah. 
it's like because it's such a weird way to watch a movie and so i i really did love it going in because i i'd also read the book so i understood i think a lot of things in terms of how he was coming at the story yeah. and i realized pretty quickly that like oh he's he's you know the hazy thing the fog coming through it but it was really like the second third fourth fifth rewatch where it's just it it really sinks into you and you really have that understanding of each scenes it's it's the opposite it's not familiarity breeds contempt it breeds love in this case wow and yeah that's incredible i don't know how to eat this yeah. i don't know how to watch this that god that's incredible we could end the episode right now <laughs> done we're out of here we did it go drink that some robotess and take a nap you deserved yeah. it you've earned it well, before before we dive into the scene proper, uh, I wanted to say something about what we will be talking about, and that is, uh, for so long on this show, I've been beating the drum that while the book, Pynchon's book, is more the story of the death of a generation, and it uses the end of a romantic rela relationship as this metaphor for that generational death, PTA, with his kind of more wry and wistful romantic vision, his take on this story is the inverse of that in that he uses the setting of a generation's death as a metaphor to tell the story of a romantic love's end. And that's a crucial distinction. And it's probably why I think I love the film a little bit more because there's, I think it's a bit warmer and there's a, a bigger heart at its core. However, in watching the film most recently during this fucking nightmare of nightmares that we're going through, the more Pynchon-esque threads really began to emerge for me in the film. The cold and the angry and the darkly funny portrait of a generation and a generation's promise withering to death. All of that really started coming to the fore. And I kept thinking about what Sancho Smilek said to Doc over beers when they were talking about the transformation of the schooner Golden Fang. Yeah. He said it's a horror story. And I've spent so long focusing on the love story and the sweet stuff of Inherent Vice that I forgot that a big part of the story is indeed that. It's a horror story. And again, re-watching it during, during this time, I truly felt for the first time while watching it during a pandemic that this, this, this film, while there's a lot of that great romantic stuff, it is still the story of a time of panic and slow dawning horror when you don't know who to trust, who to believe, who's a friend, who's a snitch, who's hip and who's undercover. It's, it's about walking into a room and feeling what Sora Liege calls an atmosphere. Who's the person next to you? Do they have a MAGA hat at home? Do they advocate for the Snyder Cut? Are they infected? Uh, you know, as they say in the, the book and the film's trailer... Everything's gone from groovy to where you at. Oh, yeah. And that kind of scared the hell out of me. How how mod, how kind of thematically modular the movie is. And that it's always been my romantic, not hard-boiled detective. It's been my romantic soft-boiled detective movie. And this most recent viewing, though, it became my horror film. It, it really felt like it captured the... This this feeling of being a generation and looking around going, holy shit, the world is nothing like I thought it was. And is so capable of hurting all of us so quickly. And perhaps it was naive that I wasn't walking around thinking about that every single day since birth. But I wasn't. 
but now I see it, and I also see it in this film, and that reflection is really startling. Yeah, uh, in, in, and it's funny because I mean, the, again, I'm going to give you a cheat answer, which is, oh, it's both, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but but knowing it's it's kind of coming at it from all these angles, um, and, and to to because like we're going to talk about so much in the scene because there's there's so much of it. But even, you know, when it starts, the first thing, 1970, is you are picking a time and a place where we go from, you know, we're going from Summer of Love and everything that was coming out of the promise of the 60s. And this is the, the year it turns. This is when it starts going in that direction. Yeah. And, you know, the, the 70s spinning out of control in this very, very sort of large scary way throughout most of the society and <clears throat> there's so much in this movie that's about that turn for me and about you know we're, we're we're on the cusp of this better days heading back into the nightmare and it's just like and, and the reasons for it <laughs> among many uh, it, it goes right back to the title inherent vice is you know we are we are talking about entropy <laughs> we are talking about something that because of how it is designed is designed to again I, everything where every character goes in this movie is about bringing it back to that point and and you talk about feeling that right now in society as we look at you know like oh america's healthcare system is broken wonder what's going to test that suddenly we have a pandemic and here we are you know what i mean it's like it's like we all this is going to sound very silly, but like all the inherent vices of our system are now glaring yeah. in, in, in a really specific way. So I, I, I'm feeling that side of it, too, right with you. And it, not to get super heavy, but hey, we're going to do it. Uh, we're recording in the middle of a fucking podcast. We're going to get heavy. Um, I'm in a steel bunker right now. I wish yeah. everyone could see behind me. Like it, it's a, it's a, I'm literally in a steel movie movie theater bunker. Um it reminds me of what Danny Glover wrote about Hurricane Katrina and the reaction to that. And every people, people are going, oh, my God, look at this, this sunken area uh, along the along the southern coast. It's it's become a ghetto. And he was like, no, no. He wrote this this beautiful piece that I'm going to totally I'm not even going to try to quote because I'm going to screw it up so badly. But he was essentially saying, no, 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 no. It didn't. This did not create this 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 level of economic devastation that you're seeing that exists in, in this area. It is revealing it. It did not create it. It uncovered it, and it is now rising to the surface like an ugly bruise for all of us to see. But it was always there. Yeah. And I think that's as you're saying, America's healthcare uh, uh, system is so so backwards. It it didn't it didn't become broken. <laughs> it was broken, and then this hit, and here we are seeing the ugly bruise rise, and I actually feel like that is a, just quite in keeping with the horror of Inherent Vice. And yes, there is horror in it, in that I think one of the the biggest thematic threads in the book, and you get it a little bit in the film, uh, especially when that, that, that heartbreaking scene where Doc and Shasta, in this flashback, they're running in the rain, and they see a empty field that's got construction fence lying around it. Something's being built there. We don't know what. Something's being built there. Doc comes back there a little later and he sees that's the headquarters now for, for 
all evil, the golden thing. The golden thing was putting its foundations down when Doc didn't even know what it was. And I think that's that's something that is a thread that runs through the book, which is the horror has been here so much longer than you ever thought it was so that when you do finally realize it, it's only because it's allowing itself to be obvious. But it is it is not just now appearing the way it does seem the way it seems to Doc. It's not just appearing. It's not just starting to pop up over the last six months. It's been there for years, if not decades. And we are only now coming to grips with its existence because we have to. And this brings us so beautifully right into the scene itself, right? So, you know, it, it's it's Doc, he's going to uh, Topanga Canyon, right? And he's going to this weird party with musicians. And instantly, it's like, of all the mansonness in this movie, this is the scene where it's, it's just you're articulating that atmosphere, right? Yeah. And... and uh, and I mean, literally, you know, we're, we're talking about the same area. We're talking about that. And it's just like there's um, and I think correct me if I'm wrong. There's only one scene where they outright talk about Manson later in the movie. Uh, yeah, there's that Chapter bit where the out be, being well, no, there, there, there's technically there's 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 technically two. There's the bit where they get pulled over by the police. And right. uh, and he's like, you know, any grouping of people with with longer hair uh, talking about the book of revelations and the exhibiting paranoid uh, could be considered a mansonoid cult. And then, yes, as you said, there's the, there's also the scene at the near the near the end, the the very, very difficult love scene between Doc and Shasta. And he's like, well, she, what kind of girl do you want, Doc? And yeah. hints that maybe he wants someone that could be a little bit more under control, like a Manson chick. Right. And uh, and, and so it's so interesting because it's right what you talk about what. You know, like the Manson thing being a turning point for how people view hippiedom, right? Because they were who they were. Yeah. But they were in this culture, in Topanga Canyon culture, music, musicians and, you know, one of the Wilsons and everybody uh, in this space. And they seemed like they were just a part of it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and like fucking Charlie Manson would say his crazy theories and everything else going on it, it was it was right there in the thrust of it and it was all mixed together in this very specific way where the evil was there the whole time just as you say it was just <laughs> way it, far longer than we knew or recognized right and and you know because like he he had had all sorts of and it was just you know because like charlie manson he was talking about a race war for years before you know the murders happened and so like there's this intense reality of everyone not seeing the problem right or just thinking it's part of this this atmosphere in this culture in this feeling and so like there's that intense paranoia in that scene i would say that scene and maybe it's just because it's it's one of the few scenes especially in the middle movie where that soundtrack comes in and there's that real subtle undercurrent playing throughout it especially in the scene after when he has the conversation with owen wilson but like oh you you really feel it in this way in a scene the way the rest of the movie kind of doesn't there's an insidiousness the way yeah. it, it kind of th- it begins with a rock song yeah which we are i'm going to bring up in a bit and then it just slowly that greenwood ominousness begins to thread its way through yeah I could say phantom thread its way through, but then I would be I would be a hack. So I'm not going to do that. But I want you to know the instinct was there. It threads its way through, and it just 
it's one of the few moments of true overt ominousness in the entire film, which is why, again, I think it is kind of fitting that we're talking about it right now because it's, it's one of the true overtly frightening moments of the film. And before we get any deeper into it, let's actually, you and I watch the scene and then we'll talk about it. Sounds good. A snitch, a spy, a weasel, and dang, if it ain't a resurrected tenor sax player working undercover, but for who? These patriotic pals of President Nixon called Vigilant California? Some other unseen hand? No, who am I then? You're the photographer. And the name of the magazine is Stone Turntable. Mm-hmm. Coy's band, The Boards, were currently renting a place in Topanga Canyon from a bass player turned record company executive, which trend watchers took as further evidence of the end of Hollywood, if not the world as they had known it. Doc and Dennis hadn't dropped acid for years in this town without picking up some kind of extrasensory chops. And truth was, since crossing the dorsal of this place, they couldn't help noticing what you would call an atmosphere. Drove up with Bambi. She heard Spotted Dick was staying here, so I had to come along and try and keep her out of trouble. She's possessed. She's got Spotted Dick blacklight posters on the wall, Spotted Dick sheets and pillowcases on the bed, Spotted Dick t-shirts, cereal, It's 24 hours a day. She's got 20. She's got Spotted Dick albums oh, on God, stereo, man. I'm looking for that guy that I met at Clubbase. He had the other night. He's here. Yeah. Where? He's in the kitchen. The kitchen. Hey, before you leave, can I get a ride with you? This place is freaking me out. Mm, okay. Mm. Good evening, uh, Larry Sportello, Stone Turntable Magazine. Slightly spotted dick keyboards. Mm-hmm. Was it possible that at every gathering, concert, peace rally, loving, being, and freaking, here, up north, back east, wherever, Some dark crews had been busy all along, reclaiming the music, the resistance to power, the sexual desire from epic to everyday, all they could sweep up for the ancient forces of greed and fear. Gee, he thought, I don't know. Before we get into the meat of this scene there is a passage from the novel that it's in the deleted scenes package on the blu-ray but it's not in the film and it's 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 a passage of such kind of lyrical horror that i i feel it's appropriate to the scene and it takes place during the scene and i wanted i wanted to just i wanted to make it part of the conversation it's uh when doc is sinuously working his way uh, through the pot fog of the rooms in this Topanga Canyon house. And in the book, of course, there's no narrator. There's no there's sort of leash as a character, but she's not the narrator. And the omniscient narrator tells us that this seemed to be happening more and more lately out in greater Los Angeles among gatherings of carefree youth and happy dopers, where Doc had begun to notice older men, there and not there, rigid, unsmiling, 
that he knew he'd seen before. Not the faces, necessarily, but a defiant posture. An unwillingness to blur out, like everyone else at the psychedelic events of those days, beyond official envelopes of skin. Like the operatives who dragged away Coy Harlingen the other night at that rally at the Century Plaza. Doc knew these people. He'd seen enough of them in the course of business. They went out to collect cash debts. They broke rib cages. They got people fired. They kept an unforgiving eye on anything that might become a threat. If everything in this dream of pre-revolution was in fact doomed to end and the faithless, money-driven world to reassert its control over all the lives it felt entitled to touch, fondle, and molest, it would be agents like these, dutiful and silent, outdoing the shit work, who'd make it happen. And as a captive viewer to daily White House press briefings about our current predicament, doesn't that feel like a description of what runs on CNN every afternoon or evening now on a daily basis? Yep. Uh, <laughs> Your whole face just sank when I, I feel like I've depressed yeah, you. As soon as you were reading that, I'm like, oh, I got to go back and read this book. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's really good book. Okay. Although I'm actually scared to reread it right now. I, I almost feel like now's not the time. It's yeah. not, I don't know that it's going to make me feel all that great. This, this most recent rewatch of Inherent Vice was the first time the film did not make me feel good. <laughs> it's like the first time that made me go, oh shit, uh, we might be well, in some trouble here. We're, we're in the moment of en entropy. Uh, <laughs> we, we are, yeah. And it kind of freaked me out a little. Yeah. But that, 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 that passage, that to me captures the horror of Doc's generation and, 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 and ours right now. And, every other generation that happens to be alive right now, which is that that feeling when you watch the news and you're like, oh, this is the golden fang. It's the golden fucking fang. And they're ruining. They're ruining it. And they're 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 destroying everything good that might be a firmament against what we're dealing with. And I just the the prescience of that and the beauty of capturing that, it's why pension's pension. And yeah. we're and we're not. Right. And we're the people debating how to pronounce his name instead of, right. instead of having his name. No, and it, and it's this it's this very specific thing, and and also it's just you know to to take that time and again compare it to 1970, um, you know where again you're you're coming off of this promise and this reaction and this this explosion of things, but it's it's the time when it's gone dark all of a sudden, and. I think about that moment, and I, and, and I think about a few things because it, it's not just, you know, the the I think about those you know straight faced men in the room, uh, you know, because they they sort of talk about it too is is the the people who can make money off of this, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, so uh, the the band in this scene spotted Dick. <laughs> right, right, that they're talking about and, and i remember the first couple times i watched it, i'm like what the hell are they like what are they, what are they saying in the scene and then i realized like oh they're talking about a fake british band uh that's that's coming out I, like it finally starts to click um you know and then she's worried about bambi who's who's there because she's basically you know really into this band and she's got and, spotted dick records she's got spotted dick blankets on the back she's got spotted dick pillowcases <laughs> yeah um 
and it's about the malevolence under that mm-hmm. right and what should be like again oh yeah we're just hanging at this musician's house and it's like i, d- I don't know living in la i've ended up in some weird parties yeah uh, most of them in the hills and and there's there's really something to that um there is there is to quote the film up there when you i, I know exactly what you mean i've yeah. been to those parties and and yeah it's always up in the hills it's it, it's like it's, it's a whole other continent of behavior and modes of behavior but as sort of leash says when you walk in there's an atmosphere yeah everything's just a little askew a little askant yep and it's you know and we we talk about the different kinds of predation that's there right um and uh, uh, it, it goes to what she says when she has that amazing quote where she starts talking about, like, was it possible that under every gathering or, you know, she lists <laughs> she lists every concert, kind of, peace rally, love it, freaking be in here, there, back east, wherever, um, wherever some dark crews have been busy all along reclaiming the music, uh, reclaiming the music, the resistance, the power, um, as she calls them, the ancient forces of greed and fear. And rewatching that, because I knew I was paying really close attention, like those two things just like lightning bolted to my brain. Yeah. Watching, you know, when we talk about the ancient forces of greed and fear, here we are. Here we are. <laughs> you know, and beneath their boots, suffering beneath their boots of their decisions right yeah. now, their greed, our fear. In such a tangible, specific, loud way. Um, and, and it's this thing that, uh, you know, because I, I could talk about everything happening right now, but it also makes me think about how that started happening again in the 70s and what was underneath that change and that building of paranoia. Like, uh, you know, not to, not to do the thing where we're on a podcast and we talk about another podcast, but uh, I, I, have, I'm i pretty sure you probably listened to uh, Karina Longworth's piece on the Manson um Family. She was just in, she was just in the last episode. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and it's that exact sort of thing of of the the murders changed this tenor in Hollywood and how people hung out and who they hung out with in this very big space. And it was just about this kind of moment where the atmosphere turns. Yeah. And it's really interesting because we, we are kind of talking about, what, not that this movie has a midpoint, <laughs> but, but we're talking about like going into this deeper heart of darkness at this point in the film. Because um, this is when a lot of that starts to come into play. Uh, and I, I think about that sort of paralleling of what's happening in the country at the time and what's happening in LA at the time and the paranoia is starting to set in and people understanding that something is going wrong with this scene in real time. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, cause nobody, nobody in that room is like talking about free love. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know? there's, there's Smedley and spotted Dick. Yeah, uh, sitting there playing his keyboards and there's a, to- a topless depressed looking woman sitting next to him silent as he's just kind of staring off into the ether and there there are biker dudes with swastikas on their on the back of their their cuts just in in the peace and love in this peace and love supposedly subculture we have fascistic bikers walking around yeah and there's there's it's just the same way the 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 same way that uh 
it gets repeated more explicitly in the book, but it's also in the film, how heroin has begun to sneak its way, how it's gone from a, uh, a doper scene to true dope, to the actual smack infecting yeah. the subculture. And, oh God, it's just, it's terrifying. I, again, I was watching it, I was watching it this past week. I'm like, holy shit, this is actually feeling uncomfortable by my all, <laughs> one of my all time favorite movies here. It's, it, I'm feeling deeply unsettled right now. And it it, it 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 only took a pandemic for me to see this extra layer <laughs> that Thomas Pinchon spent so much time threading throughout his his story, but it is there. And but what else? It, something else though I will say, uh, in, in a slightly lighter note before I start crying, is in in true terror, is one of the things I love about doing the show and breaking this film down on a scene by scene basis is. It is startlingly complex and dense if you if you want it to be, if you let it. It can be a fun, goofy detective comedy. It can be a love story. It can be a horror story. It can be any of those things. But on a scene-by-scene -scene basis, this is a far more accurate capturing and personification of a pension novel than I think it gets credit for yeah. because it is so densely latticed with so much information the way his his novels are in that for instance this scene begins with an actual obscure 1963 surf pop song called here come the the ho dads by the marquettes and the ho a ho dad is surf slang for a guy who walks around carrying a surfboard but never surfs he's a fake he's a, he's an imposter he's a cop and what is oh, that's wild what is this sequence eventually dovetailing into but two men who are both undercover, who are both imposters, who are faking their way into a situation? And even more so is, you know, the previous scene with Karina Longworth, which is the scene where Reese Witherspoon with King Phoenix, they're watching the TV and we see Coy Harlingen come on yelling at Nixon. And she's like, well, now he can get hit. He can infiltrate any hippie group and he's got he's got cred. Yeah. And. Uh, it's mentioned that one of Coy Harlingen's various snitch aliases was Rick Doppel, as in doppelganger, a double, which is a little on the nose for pension, but I, we'll, we'll give him a pass. We, he wrote Gravity's Rainbow. We'll, we'll give him a pass on this one. Uh, but it, what's, what's, what's I think interesting about that, though, is that he and Doc are really uniquely twinned here. Both are trying to do the right thing by Hope and Amethyst Harlingen. Uh both are going undercover into a hippie scene that is no longer home to either of these men. Uh, yeah. Coy no longer belongs because he's actively working for this anti-hippie outfit that just wants to keep the hippies doped and in line. And Doc no longer belongs because he remains untouched by those, those tendrils of fascism and heroin that have seeped into the counterculture. And it's at this place where these two doppelgangers meet and the plot that a prior guest, Drew McWeeny, says actually really matters in Inherent Vice, which is the salvation of the Harlingen family, it's yeah. here that that finally begins. Yeah. And that's just, that's mind-blowing to me, how, how complex that is. But it's not something, I think I'm a relatively sharp guy. I don't think I would have picked up on any of that if I didn't watch this on almost like a, as you said, I don't know how to eat this. You have yeah. to almost do it a spoonful at a time, a scene at a time. Yeah. It's almost impossible to take this movie in as a whole and take it in completely. You have to do it 
a spoonful at a time. Well, well, and it's also interesting. We talk about like that first watch. I really do remember this scene and I remember it sticking out emotionally because it's, it's really one of the few uh, um, scenes in the movie that has that delicate zoom where yep. we're slowly coming into the two of them. And there's, and it was one of those things where, again, the first watch, I was, I was like trying to pick up stuff and I was getting little bits and pieces, but th there's a feeling to their coming together and they're talking for so long. And also like him kind of opening up and being emotional. And there, there, there's, there's something that you grab onto that now, again, as I watch it for a 10th time, is this is like, this is where the heart of the movie is going to hang. Yeah. And, really interesting way and and you know we, we come back to it it's the scene that comes later but you know when he says is uh when she asks him like what about this is oh, i forget her terminology she says something beautiful but like what's gonna bug you what is what's gonna nag at you yeah in the middle of the gonna, night what's what's gonna eat at you and him talking about this in that moment out of all the things it was there and it works for me. And it was one of those things that on that first watch, like you, you get that little important bow of why this is the small thing that matters in this world of entropy. Like, um, exactly, exactly. And to, and to bring him up again, uh, well, not only will we talk about other podcasts, we'll talk about other podcast guests for this show. Uh, when Drew McQueenie was on, one of the things he said that he took from this film is exactly that, that, what ends up being the main, the main plot aspect of this film, because because again, it's it's up to us to decide what's the, what's the A, what's the B, what's the C, what's the D. For him, the narrative backbone of this film is the the salvation of the Harlingens, and what he took away from it was how this is not the the Dashiell Hammett story of the guy who walks in with his own code and sets fire to everything, destroys this organization, this nefarious organization, and walks away slow-mo as it blows up behind him like the coolest motherfucker in the room. That's not, that's not the doc. That's not going to happen here. In fact, he, he never even discovers what the, what the fang really is, who's at the top, who's at the bottom. Is it Nixon? Is it not? He knows nothing more about it than the fact that it exists at the end of the movie. He doesn't tear it down. All he manages to do is prevent one little girl from getting the little kid blues a little earlier than she might have otherwise. Like, that's all he prevents is he staves it off for maybe another year or two before she realizes the world she lives in. And Drew pointed out there's kind of a nobility in that, in the not quite pointlessness of it, but the maybe, yeah, maybe the point he's only holding it back at bay for another year or two yeah. she's still got two kind of crazed irresponsible junkies as parents hopefully they stay clean yeah but the little kid blues are all there that's inevitable that's going to happen to all of us it's going to happen that, to her and that but phrase is so specifically devastating too it breaks my heart every time i hear it in this movie i've seen this movie so many times but that scene when he's talking to sorlege and she says what's gonna nag at you and he has that single tear go down his cheek and he says little kid blues and saxophone players yeah. i i ball like a baby and as and as drew said it's in times of utter moral t terror and chaos that the smallest decencies matter most 
because they require the same sacrifice that the Hammett type hero has to make or risk by going up and destroying the evil organization. Uh, Doc is still risking his life, but he's doing it for something so small and inconsequential that it makes it so much more consequential because he's willing to give everything just to help this little girl and her dad be able to see each other again. That's so fucking beautiful. It kills me. Yeah, and it's and it's one of those things that ties into. Uh, I'm gonna make a weird comparison. You might not <laughs> right now, um, but when I think about like the dramatic structure of this movie, as it as if it exists, but like, <laughs> I was gonna say uh, such as it is, but but it does in a weird way, which is uh, it actually has. It's kind of the same thing as the wire because I was really thinking about the codas for all the endings of the characters as I was mm-hmm. literally just finishing up the movie. I was like, before it came on. Um, because it's a movie about a system, right? It's like you know, you you, sure. you have Golden Fang. You have it is um the reason I thought of it in terms of the wire, uh, is because the wire was basically Greek drama, right? So right. you you have all these people who are challenging the gods, challenging the fates. In terms of the wire, it's our modern institutions that you can't change because you're a small person in <laughs> the midst of a thing, and it's about what you can change and what you can do, yeah. and. and uh, you know, like, are, are is the institution going to eat you alive, or is it like, it, it, are you going to be able to survive it? Are you going to be able to navigate it? And so I was thinking about like all these characters and the way they bump up against what they can't change, right? And Doc finds the little thing he can change. You know, I, I think about uh, uh, you know Bigfoot at the end of the movie when. <laughs> You know, he where he's going off the reservation, basically, right, right. But like, I that's also, uh, uh, yeah. And it's like, God, I, I, I think about those ideas at the heart of it, and how much, as you say, that gesture of what can I do? Yeah. What's the small thing I can do in this? chaotic landscape of two and a half hours of you just watching madness <laughs> <laughs> but what's what what can i actually do with everything you've just seen and mm. in a way like you say it's it makes it more beautiful it makes it's what makes doc an actual hero is that he is going to risk his life he's going to put everything on the line and boy we do what we're doing we're doing it right now what what happens every single episode which is we get so far afield from the scene at hand but again, I say this every episode. It's inherent vice podcast. I mean, how can we possibly stay on point? Yeah. But yeah, the willingness to risk everything for something that is so inconsequential, or rather, the thing that everyone else would find inconsequential is the one thing to dock that is bigger than everything else. Yeah. The fact that little kid blues and saxophone, the fact that he's going to walk away from this not haunted by Shasta Fay, not haunted by whatever the hell the Golden Fang has done to the brain of Mickey Wolfman in that wonderful five, five minute, not even five minute performance by by Eric Roberts, where he just goes through a whole rainbow of emotion. As you can see, that something's been done yeah. to this man. Yeah. The, he's not going to be haunted by that. He's not going to be haunted by... Uh, Puck Beaverton and and killing Adrian Prussia. He's not going to be haunted by that stuff. What's going to stick with him was in the middle of all of that chaos and it, of him learning that basically all of Vietnam and, and 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 dentists on trampolines. It's all happening because of this vast conspiracy designed to corrupt the soul of America. He's going to walk away from that, not thinking about that. He's going to go. You know that one guy I met when all that was going on and he had that little girl 
I wonder if they ever saw each other again. No. And that, he, that, that fucks him up so much more than Shasta Faye and the Golden Fang and everything else. And that's what makes him such a unique hero in the canon of detective films or detective stories is that it's just the little kid blues. That's all he wants to put a stop to, if, he, if only for six months. And, and again, it's to, to speak to what we're talking about is like, it's possible to watch that movie and get that he saves him, but like not to have it so emotionally click because of the way the movie comes at itself. Right. Yeah. But it's there if you can, like, this is a, this is another thing I say about this movie is one of the best laughs in, in the movie is when he sees the photograph and he screams. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's this incredibly funny moment in the movie but if you sit there and you think about it and you think about what the movie is is he's screaming at the very <laughs> sight of this yeah yeah it's it's a funny trailer beat but in the film it can be quite when you actually think about it it's another one of those moments like holy shit this is a horror story well well it's all it's also funny because it's it's you know she she doesn't react to it and yeah yeah <laughs> it plays comically but when we think about what he's seen in that photograph, if the audience saw that photograph, it's they would have a very different emotional reaction. And, you know, because we're, we're talking about a kid basically being affected, a child being affected by heroin. And in that moment, it's like, that's also a part of what he's trying to prevent in this, this <laughs> you know, the, this whole kind of thing and and i think about the emotional impact that and again it's it's one of those things that you can glance right by and not think about but if you mm -hmm. think about it oh boy is it there and and that's sort of like the mantra of the entire movie is like you can pick a line here and a line there and suddenly a whole world unfurls of things to talk about um and <laughs> you're right it does it does all coalesce here there is something about this specific sequence and not even not even counting the part that we jumped ahead to where doc and coy meet in the kitchen or the, the basement or whatever that little alcove is in the yeah. kitchen there is a a weird noxious darkness to this entire sequence it doesn't look like anything else in the entire film it's it, there's just something malignant about the way elswit shoots this Topanga Canyon Mansion that I can't quite put my finger on, but so, so captures just the utter capital W wrongness of this subculture, this yeah. representative subculture that, again, neither Doc nor Coy fit into anymore, even though there's everyone else on the outside looks at them as hippies, but they are looking at these hippies and it's like, nah, this is, this is something's wrong. This is the air, the, the air looks suffocating, does it not? No, exactly. And there's two things to it, which is like you talk about the cinematography and what else what's doing is like how much the cinematography isn't playing jokes in this movie. Right. Nope. And how much it's staying with Doc and how much it's how much of it is low angle and how much of it is like kind of just like coming at this weird space for them to be in. And, mm -hmm. and like, like you said, there's almost a thickness to the space and the and like everything kind of feels very alien to Doc in the scene as he's coming around. And it's not, we don't spend much time on anybody. We're not cutting away to anyone else as we could go into this party scene and be voyeuristically looking around. Sure. He's, he's immediately kind of playing close to the vest and bringing us 
with him close to the vest. Yeah. Uh, and it, it reminds us there's the thing is the actual thing that happens at the start of the scene, which is really interesting, is uh, the first line is, uh, now who am I again? <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds silly, but it's also a great doc line. That's a uh, perfect, yeah. yeah. It's like he's just coming in and is like thinking about who is who who is this person anyway? Yeah. And, um, and not to uh, immediately start talking about Doc and bringing it back to literary traditions, but uh, my first thing is thinking about Doc and Cannery Row as you know another uh, low key yep. uh, Californian who likes taking care of his community. <laughs> I, I mean the parallels oh, are so man. obvious. I, that never occurred to me, but yeah, you're exactly right. Oh yeah, it's it, like. That was the first thing that happened when I read the book, at least the first time. I was like, I was like, oh shit, he's doing Steinbeck like in this very different. <laughs> um, and and hey, something that got something that got to me about this sequence before we before we lose this thread, uh, talking about the way Elspeth sh- shoots it. I don't know about you, maybe you've been avoiding it, but there have been a lot of people watching outbreak movies <laughs> these past few weeks, whether it's the good stuff like contagion or the not so great stuff like outbreak or the is this even good or bad stuff like uh, the stand miniseries there's been an outbreak of outbreak movies as we've been revisiting them and uh, to our to our collective horror and a staple of the outbreak movie is the scene where the doctor or the scientist who warned us he told us or she told us she said it was going to go down and the suits didn't listen. The suits out there doing the shit work, uh, operating for uh, both greed and fear. There's a scene where the main doctor or character walks through a plasticine tent or a uh, like a basketball stadium made up to to house the the ailing, and we just follow that character as they look in horror at the sick and the dying and the infected. And are just taking stock of, oh my God, look at this. Look, look at the, just this deleterious array of, of decimated human beings. And that is exactly how I viewed this scene this time around. After having seen so many of those movies lately, it's like Doc is just wandering around looking at the infected, looking at the ailing and looking at the dying you know, it's it's not, as you said, it's not this big opulent, it's not the big eyes wide shut walk through the mansion where the camera pushes past Tom Cruise now again and again so that we can see he's seeing all these people athletically, uh, uh, furiously copulating. Instead, it's just, it's staying on dock. He's in dead center, maybe floating, the camera floats around a little bit behind him, but it's just taking stock of the dead and the dying. Yeah. And it's... It's it, it is it's shot almost like a pathogen film or an outbreak film in this sequence. He's looking at those who are, who are who are sick, yeah. with with whatever this, whatever this cultural rot is that has infected his people, and he's just watching them die off. Yeah, and it, it and it's this very specific thing of of, it's not just that um, he's uh, sorry I got lo- lost track one second there, but. Um, did you get lost in my hyperbole, film <laughs> Did you get lost? No, no, no. It's, what I was going to say is it, it's that exact thing of, um, you know, the cinematography isn't so overt that it's rubbing you in it. It's just, it's this very, it's that subtle feeling. And um, it, it ties back exactly to what she was saying. I, I just remember what I was going to talk about. There it is. <laughs> uh, but 
that that feeling when she talks about like oh he you know she makes the joke that he learned this from basically doing a lot of drugs like that he gets that uh, that that ability to detect it and she mm-hmm. makes it seem like it's almost this kind of metaphysical thing but the truth is is i think the the sort of logical logical explanation <laughs> is uh her kind of saying is like oh this this dude has been in some bad situations yeah. and he knows what a bad situation feels like and like we talk about that atmosphere of going to that weird party in the hills and there's just an energy and a lot of that also is about again the, it, we can detect danger because we've been in danger before yeah. <laughs> we, we know when people are looking at us and how they feel and what they want from us and why and whether we're welcome in a space or not welcome in the space and in so much of that energy just like radiates into this little scene of him again just trying to do what could be very funny in a different circumstance but the malevolence is there and it feels radically different uh, and, and he's shaken by it which is unusual we've seen him discombobulated we've seen him kind of lovably confused yeah. like an affable family dog that can't quite understand what's going on but this is a moment where he he seems to be truly grasping the heft of something larger is happening here and i don't quite know if at this point yet the the spokes in the wheel of his brain have started to reach out and connect this to this to this boat that he keeps hearing about but he, this is definitely the moment where he's able to feel that this is as i was saying earlier when we were talking about the very beginnings of the situation we're in right now this is the more he's where i think he's looking around going oh is this this is a thing this is a real capital t thing that's going on here this is something that's going to be contended with and the last thing I'm going to bring up about the Marquettes, since we brought them up at the top of this scene, mm-hmm. which is that they were a real surf rock band who uh, had such a revolve, insane revolving door of of members and session men that really after their first few shows, they were so Rubik's Cube that none of the p- same players ever played with each other ever again, much like the Boards, Koi Harlingen's band, uh, that that is renting this house out. And I keep... So I keep thinking about the the rot that has taken root in the counterculture and how, again, in the book and the film, uh, the boards have this insane turnover of members so that no none of the members actually remembers any of the other members anymore. And they've all got bad dopers memory, as Coy says. And since there are no more original members, the current members who are in the band, uh, they, they don't recognize Coy as anything other than a session man which is what makes him such a great infiltrator. Uh, and I step back and I see that that's how Pinchon is pensioning, Pinchon is pensioning, how Pinchon is positioning the entire counterculture as this thing that's being taken over by these shitwork agents and infiltrated and being infected to make it just the entire culture is this party that we see right here where you're able to see men with swastika patches walking around with hippies and, and no one ever notices this, this curdling of a generation. And I can't quite identify what or why. And I'm going to throw that on you to do that heavy lifting <laughs> because you, because you're the Hulk, but that something about that feeling of being lost and unable to recognize anymore, the person next to you, it feels so right now to me. That, that feeling of just being unable to, that feeling of, as they say, you know, everything's gone from groovy to where are you at, man? Where you feel like the person next to you, you have to say, where are you at with all this? Like, who are you? How do you relate to this? Are you wearing a red hat or 
yeah. what, what are you doing? Like let, and there's something about that disconnect and that feeling of being unmoored from the person next to you that feels so 2020 to me that it's 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 genuinely haunting. Yeah, to watch this scene in 2020. And, and that's that's sort of a big part of it is like, again, it, it's it's not like you have hippies going against like their square parents or like what a lot of kind of the early 60s, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Is, is this is this is where you have this bleed over time, right? And a lot of this, and and to talk about uh, the root of capitalism in this movie too, you know, because that that plays so much into the Mickey Wolfman you know, plot line and what, what they can allow and not allow to happen in this larger kind of bureaucratic way. Uh, but it is also at the root of a lot of what was going on once, like, again, 60s revolution and 60s rock became popular, it became profitable. And yeah. all of a sudden you have a very, very <laughs> different thing coming out of it. It's like, it's, and it's about the way those spaces have people come into them and we talk about like you know and it happens with every scene it happens with the punk scene it happens with with whatever it is you know you have this malevolent force kind of coming into it and in you know we talk about the corrupting ancient forces of greed and fear but greed finds that way in so easily you know in, in into these spaces and we talk about like you know 60s surf rock we're talking about a bunch of people in mansions in malibu like <laughs> like, like, like that's the scene that helps originate that yeah. but it's so you know what makes malibu a fascinating place for this and this movie and this area and basically all of la beach culture kind of in general is it's this hyper intersection of these rich people who have houses and then people sleeping on the beach yep Yep. And right up against each other in this really pronounced way. And this movie, it's it's so bad. It's the opening shot. You know, it's the two houses sitting there right divided looking out onto the ocean. And, um, and when you think about that space and you think about how people, how people like Doc date people like Penny. <laughs> and, and it's like, right. And it's this flirtation. It's because they're both kind of like getting off on the side of it all. Yeah. But like, when the money comes into it, when the malevolence comes into it, when the power comes into it, who's taking what from whom and how insidious is all of it? Um, and, and that's like at this root of, of for all I could talk about of all these plot lines and what they're about in society and institutions, you just look at any every single dynamic and you're like, all right, who's taking who's taking advantage of who here? Who's and, the person operating on behalf of greed against those yeah. who feel fear? Yeah, and what you can say about what makes Doc a, a real hero in the classic kind of sense of the word is how little he's really kind of taking advantage of anybody in the movie. Oh, my God. There's, one, there's a single client in this film. Does he accept payment from... He doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, when, you know, you know, Hope, he doesn't take anything from her. He's like, I'll see what I can see. It's yeah. a, he, he literally uses that exact phrase with Shasta. He's like, well, okay, we'll see what we can see. Yeah. Uh, doesn't take money from her. He's doing that pro bono. Doesn't take money from Hope. Uh, when Koi asks Doc to go check on Hope and Amethyst for him, he's like, now, keep in mind, I can't pay you right now. And Doc's yeah. immediately like, sure, unless you know, you're the kind of person that believes you can pay with information, then I'm all ears. 
he but, doesn't take anything in the end. And at the end, he gets his door kicked down. He doesn't pay Benicio Del Toro either, but... <laughs> <laughs> that's true, that's true. Doc's... Uh, 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 Clients pay me for. <laughs> you're, you're very right. Pay they pay me for work, Doc. They pay me. You're right. You're right. But well, that said, it, right? It, yeah. It's like actually kind of embodying what he talks about, and you know, it's it's uh, he's he's a like I don't even think he's really a PI in that sort of classic sense. He's sort of a concerned party at all times. <laughs> That's a great way to He's a concerned party. That's exactly what Doc is. He, he's a yeah. concerned party. <laughs> that is perfect. And you know what? We need to we need to close this up on a good mood. This has yeah. been, been a heavy episode. I, I, I have lots of thoughts about that, but continue. About what? The heaviness? Oh, no, no. It's, oh. it's sort of like how to how to take everything we've been talking about it and like the movie i i think there's a reason it is a, a warm loving movie to you and has been for so long um no, no matter how much we can kind of watch it right now in this horror context of you know a world full of entropy uh but there's this line near the end that sticks with me time and time again um uh, where she talks about uh, uh, the ship, right? She's, ta uh, 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 she's talking um, about it, narrating and saying, like, this blessed ship. May uh, it be bound for better shores. Right, right, right. Yeah. And she, the specific word she uses is uh, a better shore where the American fate mercilessly failed to transpire. Oh, that breaks my heart every single time. The grace <laughs> and the hopefulness and the sadness of that. That's in, that's inherent vice. Those three things mixed together: that grace and hopefulness and sadness all at once. Yeah. Right. And, and I think it's to 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 put it as like, yeah, there, there's a way in what we're facing is kind of inevitable. Of of this is here, and we are dealing with it, and we are dealing with it in this realistic way. But even even sort of hoping against that, and again, doing the little things for one another and being there for one another is what you do with a cruel fate yeah. <laughs> is what you do with a system that's built on entropy and is going to collapse in its ways is again you you find the small things it's not you know i can i can sit here and hope that uh the american fate doesn't transpire with everything happening around us but at the same time i i just know what i can do is live with it and and try to do better with it you're you're driving around and you're in the fog and it feels like you're not going anywhere because yeah. that fog is so thick. It feels like entropy, even if the car is moving, because you can't see where it's going. You don't know where it's headed. You don't know if you're going off a cliff or if you're going to dogleg up La Brea or something like that. So all you can do is you hang on to the person in the car next to you, even if you're not going to get back together. <laughs> you, even this don't mean we're getting back together. You hang on to that person and you look for the light in the fog and hopefully... The headlights of another car will pop in and you'll know you're still on the road and you're still on the right track. And again, maybe this American fate will fail to transpire. Yeah. And, and that's 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 the film. And the, the I I mean, as as heavy as I was getting, yes, I still I mean I obviously I love this film and I there is grace and there is hope in this film. It's just it's a little startling to really face the darkness in it, as much as I've watched this film, to truly face the darkness in it for the first time with this last rewatch and it, it startled me it jarred me a little bit i'll admit yeah but and it's but i think that honesty is what part 
of what makes it so hard won and so oh exactly and, and i think uh you know we, you talk about that very last scene so beautifully <clears throat> but the phrase i always think about is uh where where are we going where have we been yeah and that that last kind of moment and talking about where we are now and talking about 1970 talking about you know topanga culture of music bands hanging around in mansions in 1969 and 1970 and where that all went and what happened and i i, I think you know it's it's a movie that's sort of constantly in transition and i think about that very fondly of in terms of doc being someone who's keenly aware of that in a way yeah, and keenly aware of the way things are changing and building and breaking all around him. And I, I again, when I talk about him sort of being a true hero in a way that you wouldn't think, but is sort of classic, um, is his his kind of unflappability <laughs> in the way that he doesn't change who he is, even though he's very easily flappable in a very moment-to-moment -moment <laughs> way of being startled or scared or whatever it is. He's Howard very, Hughes was Italian? Yeah, yeah, he's very human in that way. Uh, but he's also very unchanging in his empathy. Doc uh, is always Doc. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, he, he, he remains unchanged. And not in a bad way. It's he, The horrors do not change him. No, he, he accepts that they're there. He stands against them. He resists they them. them out, but <laughs> say that again. They, they bum him out, but like, uh... <laughs> oh sure, yeah, they bring him down. But at the end of the day, he's still going to try and snatch a little girl uh, from its grips if he can. Yeah, and and he's still he's still same old Doc at the end. Yeah, and and to to bring it way back is I think about that. You talked about why why do I like Paul Thomas Anderson? Um, that's that's at the root of all of it you know and we talk about what is it as him as a filmmaker that is very different from everybody else and this is kind of the subject of the book that i'm going at is it's the sense of empathy that runs throughout his entire work for pretty much everybody who always shows up at on screen with few kind of funny interesting <laughs> exceptions um there, there, the, there's a kind of softness at his work that was never, it was never in Altman's, it was never in Scorsese's, it was yeah. never everybody else. Is, is there's even the Coens? It's sort of jet black comic humor. Yeah. But no, there, there's a, there's a humanism that runs through it all. Like yeah. e even Daniel Plainview, you get the feeling he cares about. He cares about Daniel Plainview as as horrible as a, of a man as he may, may be. Like yeah, in, in a film as kind of cold and Kubrickian as There Will Be Blood is you feel bad for for daniel and his son that this is where they end up yeah and also because like everybody around him is so uniquely human and and yet like again he's he's a man bent by greed yeah <laughs> literally greed and fear yeah and um and I, I i just think about that so so attunely and and that's what i really love about this movie is is it's not ultimately it's not trying to be sort of an oblique joke kind of like Vic Lebowski is and it's not trying to be you know detective fiction and it's, it's not trying to be a movie in any of those senses but weirdly it's so glaringly hopingly like optimistic in its its lovingness and in sort of openness and the only way you can get there is if you make the movie like this yeah uh, exactly 
that's what I find kind of remarkable about it. And that's what makes it, I think, have a, it's just that little extra oomph of heart that the book has, that or that the film has, that the, the book just, uh, the book's yeah. wonderful, but the book, spoiler alert, uh, the book ends with Doc alone in that car. Yeah. Driving by himself, hoping for something to be different this time. Yeah. But in the in the film, he's got Shasta Faye at his side. Whether or not they're back together, they're in each other's arms, and they're driving off into the fog together, hoping to find that light. And I think right. that that is what makes this a PTA. And that is why he had to make this movie. Yeah. And I think that's that's absolutely beautiful. And thank God we found a way to cap this off without having to stay dark and haunted and freaked out uh, by the world outside. And uh, what, what, a, what a lovely little way to cap this off. Before we go, I want to say thank you for coming today. Yeah, of course. I want to say thank you for talking about this film with me and cheering me up a little bit. <laughs> and thank you for that wonderful anecdote. I don't know how to eat this. Oh, I that, love it. It's, that it's, blows it's, my mind. That blows my mind. Looking for the words for for yeah. so, but like the second it was said, it was just like this this slap you know slap your forehead moment. My God. Before yeah. we go. Tell people where they can find your stuff. You've got a Patreon, right? Yeah, yeah. I uh, started doing this ever since the uh, world of journalism kind of blew up. Uh, so I <laughs> <laughs> that. You know, as, as the world ends, so would everything else. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no. Uh, uh, best way is uh, Film Crit Hulk on Twitter. Uh, Film uh, Crit Hulk on Patreon. Still writing for Polygon, doing essays for them and uh, other stuff. But, yeah. Uh, uh, I'm around, I'm on the interwebs, and I'm always open to uh, talk about Paul Thomas Anderson. You say, and I better see that book soon. I better. Oh, I, <laughs> I better. <laughs> brain's on fire. It's dark. <laughs> Again, thank you for coming on. Thank you for talking about this very weird, very heady moment of the film with me. Thanks Happy to everyone for listening. And please join me next time where myself and a very special guest are going to talk our way through those little kid blues. I don't know how to eat this. If that just isn't the best possible encapsulation of this scene, this movie, these times, we don't know what is and what strange times they are. Here come the hodads, sing the Marquettes, with a hodad being a dude carrying a board but who never surfs, a fake, an imposter. And in a horror story like 2020, the hodads seem to be out in full force. Who can you trust? Who can you believe? Who's a friend and who's a straight world snitch? Who's hip and who's undercover? Whew, boy, I'm getting ahead of myself. It's in the next episode in which Koi asks, which side am I on? This episode, we're still wrestling with, who am I again? So we'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.